All right, and we are rolling once again. Brother Kevin and I are back. This is the Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace podcast, where we are always endeavoring to explore the many aspects and facets of the Christian faith and our ever-present pursuit of the grace of God. Kevin, how are you, man? Man, I am doing fantastic, and I'm excited to address these questions here on Hebrews 10.25. I knew we would get questions. That's why I encouraged them in the last podcast that we did. Well, not the last one, but I guess the last episode we did on Hebrews 10.25. And this was something where we had, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say pushback, but we had some questions that people wanted us to specifically address. Because whenever you tackle a subject like the assembly, something that has been ingrained in people for so many years with Hebrews 10.25, and you you talk about that and you challenge that assumption, you're going to probably get some some pushback, feedback, and that's exactly what we got. So we're going to spend this whole episode talking about Hebrews 10.25 in a, in a way that follows up with the information that we discussed the last time we discussed Hebrews 10.25. So if you have not listened to that episode where we examine the context of Hebrews 10.25, I would really encourage you first to listen to that before coming and listening to this episode, since this is just going to be really more of a a follow-up with some of the questions that people have asked. Yeah, and I think the questions that we received were awesome. We're not going to be able to address all of them, but we've kind of gamushed the majority of them together that ran along the same themes. Gamushed? Is that the word of the day? Yeah, that's the word of the day. That's a word that I use whenever I explain some uh, finding some of the testing we do in my office to people. I like using that word gamush. It's a fun gamushed. little word. Yeah, well, let we me, let me, I'm going to start with this gamushed question because there's about four questions in the first question. And these are all from one. these are all from you. So none of these are questions that we have made up or created. These literally are all from you as the audience. So this one we've kind of com- combined together because there were several and I felt like they they did go together. And so I'm going to put these all as one question. So let's start with this one, Lee. Number one, are we not commanded to worship God with other believers? Should Christians feel the need and an obligation together with other Christians at all? And if so, what is the purpose of these types of physical assemblies and what part does each individual play in maintaining and creating community, specifically in relation to passages such as 1 Corinthians 14.26? Well, and I'd like to go ahead and read that passage in 1 Corinthians 14 and 26, if I can, if that's cool with you, brother. And here it's, it's a very, very short passage in which the Apostle Paul says, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. And then he goes on to outline some guidelines for what that looks like. Like if anyone speaks in a tongue, you know, this is how it needs to roll. If there's no interpreter, then you need to sit down and shut up. Let the prophets speak. And of course, I'm paraphrasing here. He didn't say sit down and shut up, but he may if he lived in the 20th century. But but that's the idea. And and where this question comes from is a place in, in that episode on Hebrews 10.25. We talked about how that is not mandating and dictating an absolute requirement that every Christian needs to assemble in a corporate sense as we do today. And as we know, church, attending church today on Sunday morning at 10.30 or 10 o'clock or whatever time at a certain address, etc., we challenge that idea in that episode. And so the question is, is, well, if that's the case, 
are we not commanded to worship God and to come together with other believers? What about 1 Corinthians 14 and 26? And from what I can tell in the scriptures and what the scriptures teach is, is that in order to be, and I don't know, I hesitate to use this terminology, but in order to be pleasing unto God, just for lack of a better term, the expectation is that if you are a follower of Christ, that you're going to want to assemble with his people. You are going to want to get together with other people that are like-minded in that way. And in doing so, there are certain things that we do in that capacity where we encourage one another, we lift one another up, we hold one another accountable to a sanctified life. There are benefits that come from that. And the idea of a Christian or someone saying that they're going to follow Jesus but not be plugged into a community, to me, that seems to be a non-starter. Just to me, and there's more that we'll talk about in a minute, but it seems like you can't really have one without the other and to to ignore community and coming together as community and having community with one another, with other believers, with other Christians to ignore that is to ignore one of the central tenets of the faith. And that is a collective growing together as we pursue, you know, God's grace and we seek to, to be pleasing unto God. I think we need to back up when we are looking at these questions too. Because the way that I now understand Scripture and relate to Scripture... By the way, I have a book coming out <laughs> when I talk about this. Sometime, it was supposed to be this year, but I continued having to read more books. And then the more I met people, they're like, oh, you need to read this book and this book. And I was trying to read ca- uh, point and counterpoint arguments just to make sure that I, ha- I had a good understanding to, to understand and see all sides to as much as I could possibly see on different issues when it comes to reading the Bible and understanding the Bible. I, I've changed so much on that. And I think that we have to, to back up a little bit because when someone asks a question, are we not commanded to worship God with other believers? This in and of itself is already treating the New Testament like some sort of a law book. Yeah, and yeah. I, I, would, I would almost turn this question around when I'm, when I'm reading it and say, okay, am I commanded to have a good time with my wife? Am I commanded to, to go on <laughs> dates with my wife? And the, the answer, that, that, that question seems so nonsensical because if I have a good relationship with my wife, that's going to be a natural result. I, of course, I'm going to want to have a good time with my wife. Of course, I want to spend time with her. Of course, I want to go out and have dates and go, go to the movies and go to the restaurants and just, just enjoy a company with her. Of course, I want to do those things. So when we look at religion, when we look at Christianity as a dry, ritualistic um, you know, belief system, then these questions like this can come across that way. Whereas I would really want to turn it on its head and say, well, if, if I really love Jesus and I love God, then of course I'm going to praise him and worship him. Just, just like I would want to fellowship and, and be around other believers who do the same thing. And so to answer that question, yes, I believe certainly that that is part of the Christian life. And should Christians feel the need and an obligation together with other believers at all? Lee and I, we were talking about this before we started recording, the importance of accountability. Usually we know what we're supposed to be doing week in and week out just as human beings. We know the things that we need to improve on. We know our weaknesses. 
but we fail <laughs> all the time and we need to have that accountability to help us. We need to have that encouragement to continue to motivate us. And so all of these things play an integral part of our Christianity, but not in a sense of saying, well, does the Bible say we have to do this? And well, do, do, we, do we have to do this? Does God command that we do X, Y, Z? That whole approach is an approach that I now completely deny. I, I completely renounce that. I don't believe that's how we should look at Scripture at all. But I do think that we, when we look at Scripture, we see that if if I love God, and if God is truly a God worth serving, and I believe He is, then of course I want to come together with other like-minded individuals. I want to come together with other believers so we can praise and worship God and encourage one another and have that accountability to to get better, to be better, to love better. And so when that question is asked, what is the purpose of these types of physical meetings? I think it's all of these things. But going back, Lee, to what you said earlier, Hebrews 10.25, I don't believe has anything to do with a corporate worship assembly in the sense of how many people have applied that passage today. I I think Hebrews 10.25 is just speaking of general fellowship. But I do believe there are other passages. I do believe there are other principles, if you want to call it that. But there, there. I mean, the whole New Testament is all about giving praise and worship to God. So I don't want anyone to leave this podcast or the last podcast thinking that we don't think that you should worship God, or you, we we don't think you should get with other believers to worship God. That can't be further from the truth. It's just taking a diff, completely different approach by saying, "Well, Hebrews ten twenty five says I have to have my my butt in a pew every Sunday morning, or else I'm not worshiping God." It's, it's just ridiculous. Well, and I think that we we tend to lose the narrative whenever we approach it that way, and we use Hebrews ten twenty five as a proof text to make it say something that it never said. Like you said, you know, the question from the outlook of are we not commanded to worship God with other believers, you know, presupposes that the New Testament is functioning in a way that that it isn't intended to function. As you you just put that so well, but the question to me is, like you said, you you want to turn that on your head. Is our walk with God, what kind of God do we serve? Do we serve a transactional God? Do we serve a God that's a mad tyrant in heaven that has outlined a list of rules and regulations that we are to follow? And if we ignore those rules and regulations, that we do so to our peril. And to make things even spicier, he took those rules and regulations and hid them and encoded them with encoded messages. He didn't just come out and say it. Like you can look at the book of Leviticus, and I think we've mentioned this on the podcast before. You can look at Leviticus at how the tabernacle was to be prepared. Like God outlined the dimensions. He told the materials. He revealed, you know, the the layout and the furniture and where it was supposed to be and how big it was supposed to be, what the priests were supposed to wear, the material it was supposed to be made of, the colors, what kind of underwear the priests were supposed to wear. I mean, God goes into detail on all of those things. And then we get into the New Testament and we don't see anything like that anywhere. So it's almost like when we say, well, are we not commanded to worship God with other believers? No, we're not. Are we expected to worship God with other believers? I I would be more comfortable saying, yes, we are. But even then, the question is, why are we worshiping God with other believers? Are we doing so from a sense of obligation? Are we doing so because it's been ingrained within us? This is absolutely what I have to do. And if I don't do this, I'm going to go to hell. Is that why we're there? What motivates us to be there? Do I look forward with anticipation to gathering together with my brethren? If I do, 
then the question is why it's because my brethren are an encouragement to me. It's because they exhort me to do good things. It's because they encourage me. It's because they rebuke me whenever I get out of line. We're accountable to one another. We answer only to God, but we're there to build up and encourage one another. And you see that over and over and over and over again in the new Testament, you see that over and again, that's the primary motivating factor. We're there to encourage one another and to thereby be encouraged by one another. But then if I'm not looking forward to assembling with the saints, if I'm not looking forward to going to church, if Sunday rolls around, I'm like, oh, here we go. Let me get up and get my clothes on. And I really don't want to go. I really don't want to be there. But I'm Hebrews 10.25 says I have to be. Hebrews 10.25 <laughs> says I have to be. So I'm going to get loaded up and get the kids. And maybe I'm so surly. I'm, I'm you know, biting at the kids a little bit. We're on our way to church. I'm like, hey, you quit arguing back there. You shut up. Quit that. We're at church. And then you get out of the car and you walk in and you're all smiling. Oh, hey, how are you? And you're just, you know, you're mad at the world and you're like, all right, here I am. Well, then the question is, why does that mentality exist? Why yeah. do I have that mindset in my head? Is well, it because and, and people I don't play pretend for, for an hour and they're not even there doing what, and we talked about this at length in that episode on Hebrews 10 25 is that people pretend they go and play, they, they play, they dress up and go play pretend for an hour. And yeah. then they leave and they're like, okay, now I can be myself again. <laughs> but, but then, but here's, here's the question. This is what I'm building up to with that is why do I have that mindset whenever it comes to assembling with the saints? Why am I just like, oh God, I just don't want to be here. I don't want to go. Is it, does it have something to do with me and my spiritual immaturity? And I think in a lot of cases, if we have that kind of mentality, that very well could be the case. I know that has been the case for me in the past, but typically I would say that in more cases, the issue is because that community isn't functioning as it should. And this, this gets into the last part of the question. What is the purpose of these types of physical assemblies and what part does each individual play in maintaining and creating community? If you're not looking forward to going, the question is why, if those fundamental needs of encouragement, of exhortation are not being met, why would you want to be a part of that? You know, I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu and jiu-jitsu is an extremely tight-knit community. You develop deep relationships with the people you train with and you have to because you're all over each other. It takes a lot of trust to put trust into somebody that, yeah, they're going to try to strangle me. And if they get a hold of me and I tap, they're going to let go and they're not going to hurt me. It takes a lot to do that. But there are some gyms out there and there are some jujitsu coaches that are abusive. They're not good coaches. And it gets to the point where people are like, well, I don't want to go train. I'm not going to be there. And they're going to start finding excuses why they don't want to train or whatever else. And it's because the community isn't holding up its end of the bargain. And then if the community isn't upholding its end of the bargain, why is that the case? Is it because there's a fundamental flaw within the individuals within that community? They really don't care. Maybe everyone's just there out of a sense of obligation. Or maybe everything that that community is predicated upon does not is not conducive in and of itself to that exhortation and to that encouragement. And I think in a lot of our churches, that's the bigger issue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and this this kind of leads into the next question, and that is, would you say that there are both good and bad things about the institutionalized church, and do you believe home churches or non-business-like church structures are the exclusive way to go? We talked about the idea of institutionalized churches versus home churches or non-institutionalized churches in the sense of not having a 
business-like structure. And so I had someone reach out to me and they wanted us to unpack that a little bit more. What exactly we mean when we talk about an institutionalized church versus when we talk about a church that does not have a business-like structure. Now, it's been a minute since we talked about Hebrews 10.25, and I'll admit I haven't listened to that episode. I try to listen after we record them before they go live so I can go back and fix anything that may have slipped through the cracks. But when, to my knowledge, we kind of touched on that and you alluded to it, but we really didn't get into it. We didn't get into the weeds on that idea. So we'll, we'll unpack that a little more. And as I understand it, the way that most of our churches are built now, and you know more about this than I do, so I'm, I'll lay this out, then you just pounce on it, brother. But most of the churches as they exist today, when we consider a church, we think of a building in which people gather to worship. There is usually a staff on that church that handles the day-to-day activity of the church. Most churches are established with a, a tax identification of a 501c3, a nonprofit organization. They have employees. They have an employed minister. They have an employed church secretary. Some churches may have an employed music minister or, or whatever else. Um, in any case, no matter how big or how small you scale that, that general structure is going to follow suit. Um, the church usually has grounds that need to be maintained. That's where most of the offering and the contribution goes to. And you have the minister that stands up in the pulpit, that does the studying, that does the preaching, that delivers the message. And most congregants are passive observers in that process. In contrast, most home churches have a greater engagement, even though the numbers are going to be smaller of the overall number of people there, they're going to have a greater engagement within the congregants that gather together in that place. And in either case, you can have a great deal of community or you can even have walls that arise. But that tends to be the differentiating characteristics between those two as it relates to the corporate church structure. Yeah, and I don't want people to get thrown off by the word home church because there are other churches that are a non-business-like structure that don't meet in homes, but they're not an insti- a typical institutionalized church. Uh, some of the, some people call them communal churches. That term can also be a little off-putting to some people because they don't really understand what that means. Like, is this like a commune or what's going on? But it just means that it's it's a lot more participatory and the, the nobody really gets paid. It's not a business. Instead of a, a church, a group of Christians coming together to worship where you pay one guy to get up and give you his commentary, it's more about everyone coming together, which... I've written a little bit about this. I've, I've researched it quite a bit more than I have actually written about it because I do want to, to do some more writing about it in the future. But a few things I want to say as qualifiers when we're talking about the difference between a institutionalized business-like church versus a, a non-business-like church structure. Number one, I believe that God can use either structure. There are some out there who are very dogmatic both ways, and I just do not fall into either one of those categories because I believe God is a God of accommodation. God was able to use kings. God was able to use the temple. He was able to use all of these different things in the Old Testament, and I believe God can do the same thing today. So even though I do believe that a non-institutionalized, non-business-like church structure is what we see in the New Testament. I mean, there's no denying that. They met in homes. They didn't have a, a music minister who got paid, you know, $85,000 a year to, to lead songs and do other things. And I'm not, I'm not uh, mocking anybody who does that. So I want to be Yeah, we're not careful. dogging that. Yeah, no, we're not but, dogging that. But, but we need to be honest. We need to be honest and say that just didn't exist, okay? You know, the church was not an employment machine. And <laughs> in the, in the, you, didn't, you didn't go to school to be an employed minister as your livelihood. 
Um, so I, I think that that's important for people to understand. And I also don't think that there's anything wrong with someone getting paid to do the work of the Lord. We, we see that in 1 Corinthians 9. And, and there's, there's other passages that certainly would teach that there are times when people should be compensated for their work. But it was not in the sense of an employer employment like we see today. That said, even though it's not biblical, I don't think it is anti-scripture. It's, it's unscriptural, but it's not anti-scriptural. So I don't have a problem per se with the institutionalized church structure in and of itself. If, if God, God can use anything he wants to bring people together. And if that's the way that a group of Christians have decided that's the way they want to do it, and that's the way they want to build community and worship, then there are many positives that that can can actually bring forth that having a smaller non-business-like church structure may not be able to provide. So yes, I do think that there are both positives and negatives about the institutionalized church structure. And so I don't want to just say, no, there's nothing good about it. It's all bad. At the same time, I do believe that in our society, in our culture, this whole idea of paying one guy week in and week out to give us his commentary, when we can actually go to the internet and we can buy books on Amazon written by, by, by scholars, people who have studied individual topics much more than one man ever could. And this is even when I was a preacher, I told people, I said, look, I, can, I cannot be a specialist in every Bible subject. <laughs> I said, I can't do it. The, the best thing to do is to try to study people who have spent years in one particular theological field to really understand certain topics. I said, because I'm not a counselor and I, I'm, I'm not all these different things. I, I, you know, I'm not a, a Hebrew scholar. I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm not an Old Testament scholar. And most people who stand up week in and week out, even if they are a scholar of one or two things, that's that's as far as it goes because time will not allow someone to to be a scholar in multiple fields when it comes to theology and biblical topics. So that that said, I like the idea of a non business like <clears throat> church structure, not only for myself but also for the society and the current culture that we're living in. As more and more people are leaving the institutionalized church. I believe we're seeing the reasons why people are leaving. And this gets into a, another question. We'll kind of put these together. I don't know if this stat is true or not. This was just the way the question was asked. And I, I did not check this out. So I don't know if it's true, but this is how the question was asked. It said 50% of Christians 40 and under are leaving institutional churches. The top reasons they give for leaving are lack of transparency and community. In what specific ways do you believe churches can improve this? Now, once again, these are stats that were given by the one who sent in this question. And so I don't know if these are true, but assuming that's true or assuming that's close to true, no one denies that people are leaving institutional churches right now yeah. uh, by, by large numbers, very large numbers. So if that's the case, why is that happening? Well, people are wanting more community. They're wanting accountability. They're wanting transparency, and they're not getting that. And unfortunately, oftentimes institutionalized churches do not provide that. I've known so many preachers who the second they were honest with their struggle, they were fired because they didn't want their quote unquote preacher or pastor to look weak to the congregants. In fact, one man even told me to never show a weakness as a preacher because you're the leader and leaders don't need to show weaknesses. That's a bunch of garbage. And unfortunately, though, that's what people are hearing. I mean, I went to preaching school. I was trained to be an employed minister, and I wrote an article called Why I Left an Employed Ministry and Why I'm Never Going Back. <laughs> and I, once again, I want to continue to emphasize, I'm not judging people who are still in it. Most of my friends are employed ministers. 
And I'm not, I'm not dogging that at all. They know that we've had multiple conversations. We disagree on a lot of things when it comes to that, but we're not making this a matter of contention, but I do think it comes down to a matter of practicality. And if people are leaving and people are losing their faith in Jesus, we need to change. We need to figure out what we can do in order to make faith real to people. And the benefit of these non-business-like church structures, uh, whether you call them communal churches where people still meet in buildings and people just donate their own money so they can you know, meet in, in a building where they can come together and different people volunteer. Uh, there's one church in Oklahoma City who, that does this. And uh, each week, two, two different families are the ones that get together and kind of plan for the following week's services. And it's different every week because everyone is involved. And they st- it, it looks very similar in a lot of ways, but also very different in a lot of ways because it's a lot more participatory and everyone is engaged. It's not just one or two people. And when you take the money, what I have found, when you take the money aspect out of things, it changes the dynamic completely. And I know I'm kind of on a soapbox here, but let me say a couple more things and I'll, I'll throw it over to you. So people oftentimes ask about, well, what about money? Are you saying it's wrong for a preacher to get paid and all these things? And once again, I want to emphasize, no, that's not what I'm talking about here. But by and large, can we just be honest for a moment? Most institutionalized churches are not providing community. Can we just be honest? Can we admit that when you have a church that has hundreds of people, most people go and they sit in a pew and they talk to who they already know and then they leave. And their involvement, you have maybe a handful of people who are truly involved, and we even call them pew sitters. That's what people call them. We, and, and people will talk, about, oh, they're the pew sitters. Well, why are they pew sitters? They're pew sitters because we have created an environment. We've created an environment that is conducive to making pew sitters because we've told people that's all they got to do. Show up, come to church, give money in the plate, uh, uh, say that you mentally believe the things that we're teaching and you're a faithful Christian. And so yeah. there's no community. There's no, uh, you know, application. And I know there's people listening right now who are saying, well, wait a minute, that's not the case at my church. Okay. It may not be, but by and large, I can promise you most institutionalized churches are having this problem right now. We're seeing this with COVID. Nobody's returning and people are church leaders saying, well, once things get back to normal, people will return. No, they won't. There will be some who return, but most people aren't. Why? Because they finally have their excuse. They've not been wanting to be at that uh, the institutionalized building for a long time. And now they finally have their excuse because they're like, well, I haven't not been I've not been getting my community for years. I've not been getting spirituality for years. And, you know, the, the old saying is, well, you get you know, you get out what you put in and all these different types of things. But when we're not allowing people to put in other than just putting their money in a plate or sitting in a Bible class and listening to the same teachers and the same preacher week after week, say the, say ultimately the same thing or just give one interpretation or one commentary based upon this, this one man or woman's study. It's, it's just not going to provide the environment that we need. And I want to give this stat because I find this very interesting. When we look at other institutions when we when we think about the the idea of of money and how money is spent and those types of things, I was recently talking to a friend of mine who is an employed minister, and he and I have always just gone back and forth in friendly debates on this. I always joke with him, and he knows where I stand. I know where he stands. And he called me up a few weeks ago, and he said, "Kevin, I'm really starting to question whether or not I need to be an employed minister um, because of the amount of money he's making." And he said, "I just don't know if this is really what." what I'm supposed to be doing as a Christian. He said, because what I'm doing is actually the work of what all Christians should ultimately be doing. (laughs) And he said, you know, we have so much, he said, I have so much money and our church has so much money. We're spending 
all of this money on, you know, instead of we have all these hungry people, all these homeless people in our area, and we justify and say, well, we can't help them because you know we're we're spending it on other things. And, you know, he said that he's really struggling with this. And I thought that this was a good stat. And I wrote about this in, in an article that I wrote on tithing and why I don't believe that tithing is a uh, not only a, not a New Testament command, it's not a New Testament principle at all, but that's been held over people's heads, just like Hebrews 10.25, in order to get people to, to, to do what they want them to do. But here's, here's what's interesting about this. I hear people all the time talk about uh, church institutions and benevolence and things like that. Well, most churches, and this was a study done, studies show that 80%, 80% of the money institutionalized churches receive is self-serving and goes toward basic operating and staff expenses. 80%. Wow. Now, people say, well, wait a minute, Kevin, but you know that still means 20% doesn't. And if you have a huge institutional church, then that's still a lot more money than a little small dinky home church, right? But here's the problem. Many of these Christian organizations that are not institutionalized churches, such as like Food for the Hungry, Compassion International, these are causes that are still institution, Christian institutions, but they have found a way to maintain staff and their operations while allowing the majority of the money they receive to be given directly toward the poor and needy and other causes. For example, Compassion International keeps its staff and fundraising expenses to under 20% of the money they receive. So they have actually flipped the script. So you have institutional churches who say, well, we're, we're an institution. We have to have money in order to pay our staff and our buildings and to operate. So they're using 80% to do that. But then you have other institutions that are Christian who only have to spend 20%. So even if we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, my question is, why can you have institutions like Compassion International only spending 20% of the money they receive on their staff and operating expenses, but most institutionalized churches spend 80%? And if you don't believe me, if you, don't, if you think I'm just blowing smoke here, I would encourage you to go and ask your church. I want to. I want to see a financial report. I want to see how much we're paying our preacher, our preachers, or you know, most churches now have multiple uh, staff members. And I want to see how much we're paying for a building. I want to know how much we're paying all these different things. And you will. You will be shocked. I. I, I can guarantee you that. Anyway, I'm going to get down on my soapbox because I really went on a little <laughs> there. But this is something that I'm very passionate about, and. Something that it's not a matter of who's right or wrong, because I don't think there is a right or wrong. I, I don't think that church institution, you know, institutionalized churches are the exclusive way to go. And I don't think that uh, that home churches are non-business like church structures are the exclusive way to go. I don't. I believe God can use both. But when one continues to, to make mistakes and one continues to have bad results, then things at least need to be changed. Even if even if not completely thrown out, things at least need to be changed and transformed. Well, and it's so hard to change that and transform it whenever so many or so much of that is driven by a presuppositional approach to Scripture in coming to Scripture, not only in in a sense to confirm some of these biases that continue to drive this idea of the institutional church. And this is what church is. And this is what the Bible is referring to whenever it refers to a community of believers. You know, it's a, you know, a white building with a steeple and a, you know, a, a little entryway that you come into with wooden pews and a pulpit up at the front, et cetera, et cetera. 
And I, I think what you got at right there was really good as far as it relates to the community aspect of it, because there are a lot of people that are leaving churches, just like you said, because they've never experienced that community. There's a shallowness there. They're, they're not forging deep relationships with their brethren, with their brothers and sisters, because the only time they see them is on Sunday. And it's it's not necessarily a, the fault of the institutional church itself as much as it is a product of that setting in and of itself, mm -hmm. because it's not conducive to getting to know one another on a deeper level. It, it's not conducive to forging relationships and forging bonds and, and everything else. So um, the structure of the institutional church itself, even in smaller churches, can lend itself to superficial relationships in which community really isn't even built. And you touched on this a little bit, but I'd like to mention the idea of transparency. It, you, you touched on it a little, but transparency, that's one of the reasons why you and I are able to do this podcast is because the money factor isn't a factor. You know, we've talked about that before. I'm not an employed minister. You're not an employed minister. You used to be. And I used to be on the circuit and I would go and teach at various local congregations and small churches. I don't do that anymore. And in not doing that, I see why there is that lack of transparency. And whenever I'm referring to transparency, what I mean is these preachers that may have a struggle with a particular issue or a particular sin, or these preachers or pastors who may be questioning the status quo of their particular denomination or their particular community. Maybe you have a, a Baptist preacher that's questioning one of the five points of Calvinism, but they can't talk about why they think that maybe it you know, total hereditary depravity, you know, maybe it's, maybe we're taking that too far. Maybe there's a little more nuance to that. And he gets up and he says something like that, he'd be fired or someone within the churches of Christ saying, you know, well, you know, maybe the case that we make against instrumental music, maybe it's not as strong as, as what I, is what we tend to believe that it is. You know, they get up and they say something like that and they are removed from their post. Their livelihood is gone. Their ability to provide shelter for themselves, shelter for their family, et cetera. It's eliminated. I've experienced that not to the degree where we're homeless because some of my perspective shifted. But I mean, whenever we started this podcast, whenever we started this podcast, there were quite a few brethren that were resistant to the idea. And there are still several that take issue with the fact that you and I are co-hosting this, that I'm a part of this with you because a lot of what we have talked about and a lot of the positions that I have studied my way into and a lot of the positions that I studied my way out of, they run so counter to the narrative that our people tend to hold to and purport. Yeah. And I lost appointments at different congregations and I was asked not to come back to different congregations because of some of the conversations that we have had on this. Now, I didn't really make any money from any of that, but I can only imagine what it would be like for someone who was maybe raised in this system or any other theological system. They've devoted their life to it. They've gone to school, they get their degree or in your case, their certificate. And then they go and start <laughs> sharing, <laughs> baby. <laughs> And then they go and they start working with a church and a congregation as they grow and they mature spiritually, they begin to deviate from that standard. And if they do that, they lose everything. They lose everything that they have worked for. They they lose their ability to take care of their family, to, to put braces on their kids' teeth, to put food on the table, to provide a home for their, for their spouse. 
And so for that reason, they're just not going to get up and talk about it. They're going to toe that line. And because of that, there's a lack of transparency. The people that are the pew sitters who may struggle with some of these things, they never hear anything from that would indicate that it's okay to struggle with those things. It's okay to wrestle with those things. We need to be able to have these conversations, but it never happens because the money is involved. And I, I think that's a really important point that we that we don't need to miss with this. Well, the the whole aspect of livelihood, and when we talk about employed ministry, which I, I understand this is getting off a little bit, but I think it does go hand in hand with what we're discussing, is that I, I think that any preacher who decides to become a preacher as part of their livelihood, or all of their livelihood, should I say, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. As I said earlier, I don't think there's anything anti-scripture with that. But I, no, I, not I, at do, all. I do think, though, that said, that the person needs to uh, assume all of the risk associated with that because they need to know going into this, most people you're going to deal with are not going to care about your honesty. They're going to care about you regurgitating what they already believe. And that's just the straight up fact. Anyone who, anyone who disagrees with me on that, I'm going to say that that on that point, you're deceived. Because if you honestly think you can go into a group of two or 300 people and start teaching things that are different than what they believe and everything's going to be okay and you're not going to have any pressure to 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 maybe tone that back a little bit then you're going to be in for a rude awakening and i and i told this to a friend of mine one time when he was talking about getting into preaching a while back and because uh, I, I resigned six years ago and then I did a little part time preaching. And I realized I didn't even want to do that because the second you get paid for being a preacher by a group of people, uh, you do become controlled by that that by that group of people as far as what happens to you. Uh, you, you may end up quitting or you may end up getting fired. But the point is, if you want to stay in that position, if you're getting paid to do anything, whoever's paying you is in charge. I mean, that's just the bottom line. If you're getting paid to do something, whoever is paying you to do something is ultimately in charge. And I've heard people say, well, I don't care. I'm going to do the right thing anyway. And that's that's true. I've known people who do the right thing and they have to move their family every six months to a year because uh, they just keep running into the same problem, thinking they're finally going to find that one church that's going to just be this wonderful group of people who's going to all be honest and 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 open-minded and willing to hear things that are different and constantly have their their thinking challenged. The reality is that's just not the case. There are people in, in every church who is willing to have that happen, but most congregations by and large if I were to go today and and just teach any of these things that we've discussed to to a group of people uh, where I came from, it, it would not be accepted very well. It, it would it would not be tolerated because it would either be viewed as false teaching, or it would be viewed as questioning, or it would be viewed as, uh, you know, uh, shaking the faith of individuals because we need to act like we know what we're talking about at all times instead of admitting vulnerabilities and when we have our own questions and doubts and all those different things. So I, I this is something I'm very passionate about because I have seen many people get hurt and lose their faith, commit suicide over these types of things. And, and this is this is not a joke. It, it's something that this is not a matter of me just wanting to be right and proving everybody wrong. This is a matter that I've been an employed minister. I know how the system works. If people who are listening to this who are employed ministers, they know how the system works. They know the politics in the church. So all of that said, the bottom line is when you when Lee, you're talking about this transparency, I think that when you take the money aspect out of things, People can be transparent. They're not worried about losing their job anymore. But if they do want to be an employed minister, they need to have a course in the fact that you're probably going to be abused. You're probably going to have to move a lot or you're going to have to spend a lot of time with people 
never really getting them to where they where you want them to be or never completely being honest with them because you're afraid of losing your job. And there have been few exceptions to that rule. I, I truly believe that there have been few exceptions to that rule. But, you know, Lee, let's let's get on to some, some more questions that kind of continue to talk about this because we've done a lot of deconstructing. And I know that there have been people who want us to kind of reconstruct. So let's assume people are listening to this and they go, okay, Kevin, I don't have a home church. I don't know anybody who does have a home church. Um, I don't really know anyone who has a communal church around my area. So I'm, I am kind of stuck at an institutional church or I'm a leader at an institutional church and I hear what you're saying, but I want to change. So what are some things that we can do right now, right here to begin to, to change, to have that community? Well, and that's, and that's that, that next question that we'll dive into. What are some ways that churches can make themselves more of a community and less of a business? And I mean, that is, that is a really hard question to answer really, because there's, there's no real simple answer to it. I mean, the construction and the construct that exists in the institutional church structure it's so prevalent and it's been around for so long. Whenever you say church or you say the word church, the image that flashes in people's minds is that white building with a steeple on it that people go to to sit in and worship at. It's not a group of people or the, the mental image people have isn't a group of people sitting around in community building one another up in the faith. That That's not it. So a, a part of that has to begin with recognizing what the New Testament refers to the church as. You never see the church referred to as a building. You never see the church referred to as the corporate entity as it exists today. It is always referred to as a group of people, a group of believers, whether in a universal sense or whether in a congregational sense. And these are people that are coming together, not only to worship God, but to build up and encourage one another. And I think that it has to begin with recognizing that that is what the church should look like. The function of the church is then to go out and to preach the gospel to the lost. But it's not just coming together in a place to, you know, to preach a 30 minute sermon about Jesus. It's going out and meeting people and being Jesus to others, to yeah. showing that love of Christ to others, to, to feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the poor and, and helping the sick, you know, being the hands and feet of Christ, you know, and is, you know, when did we see you hungry and you fed us or, or, you know, when did we see you hungry and we fed you or see you naked and clothed you? Well, in as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Jesus illustrates what following him is. And whenever you have a mission like that and you're going out and you're giving for the sake of giving and loving for the sake of loving and you're serving for the sake of serving, because that is the higher standard that God has called us to. At that point, you are going to create community. People will be drawn into that and it will grow in an organic way. Well, in some, some practical ways that I have seen churches accomplish this. And after I've just gotten, you know, spent 15 minutes beating down the institutionalized church, let me say that there are things that have been very beneficial in ways that institutionalized churches have also been able to create a hybrid of sorts where they still kind of keep that institutionalized structure, but they offer a lot more ways that Christians can can have community together. I've seen institutionalized churches build gyms. 
for uh, the community in, in especially low income areas where the kids can have a safe place to play uh, after school and, and get to know about Jesus and have a devotional. And there are paid staff who are there who are able to work with them. Those types of things I believe are fantastic. And if that's what institutionalized churches are doing, kudos to you and keep doing what you're doing. The problem is that's not what most institutionalized churches are doing. So I believe if institutionalized churches have the resources and they have all this money, Quit spending it on huge auditoriums, okay? I mean, look, and this is all just my personal opinion here. So so you can take it for what it's worth or dismiss it. But here's the thing. We've got to get out into the community and be Jesus to people, as Lee, you were just talking about. And, and, and some of the ways I've seen that, as I just said, I've seen um, churches go into low-income areas and actually build a building and say, okay, this is going to be a gym now. And instead of kids going out and getting into trouble or doing things they shouldn't be doing, they can come here. And they can play basketball. They can learn about Jesus. Uh, I've seen churches who now are, and most, a lot of churches are starting to do this. They are starting to have more home groups, which is a home church in essence. And they're starting to say, okay, on Sunday nights, every Sunday night, you know, get with six or seven other families and we're going to rotate that every quarter so you can get to know people. You can really be honest and vulnerable with one another and you can have that accountability. Not, not the coercion that usually comes from fear, but, but, accountability that comes from choice and faith. And in so many churches, they go about it the wrong way because they want to coerce people. They want to say, well, Hebrews 10.25 says you got to be here. And Bible says you got to tithe and all this. All this is coercion. And and coercion is, is, is not really giving people much of a choice. Jesus didn't coerce anybody to follow him. Uh, Jesus, in fact, made it very clear. Look, if you don't want to follow me, that's that's fine. I mean, that's it's up to you. But I, I want you to. And there's going to be consequences if you don't. But I want you to. And the, the church today, oftentimes, instead of, of, of holding people accountable because those individuals want to be held accountable, we try to coerce individuals into doing things they don't even want to do to begin with. But So I, so I think uh, spending money more into the community, um, being known for, for those good works, not just so you can say, look at all the good works I'm doing, but so that you can glorify your Father which is in heaven. And that's what Matthew 5, 16 says the church should be doing. Getting involved, even if if not specifically the ones who's creating these things, maybe a, your 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 congregation's smaller. You don't have that kind of money. You can still volunteer and get involved in these types of things. And I, I've seen churches who do more of a of a hybrid mix, and especially when it comes to what some people call that hour of worship. I've seen churches make that more communal. They're still institutionalized churches, but they've made that more communal where they don't really pay a guy to be the preacher per se, but they do pay someone to kind of be the coordinator. But they don't expect that coordinator to be their one and only commentary on the Bible each week. Instead, he kind of coordinates and helps all be a part of that service where it is more participatory. So I do think that institutionalized churches can do this, and there's various ways depending upon the resources, depending upon the desire. Because first of all, if an institutionalized church does not have a desire to change and and start to adapt more to not only what I think is more biblical, but also what I think is more pragmatical today, then then, then it's not going to work. And so you're going to have to first have leadership to say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to begin to change these different things and create more community. And here's how we're going to do that. We're going to have more uh, gatherings. We're going to spend more money in, in outside community reach. We're going to uh, have more opportunities for people to get involved. It's not just going to be you come to church on Sunday morning, you sit in the pew, then you go to Bible class and you sit in the pew, and then once a month we have a potluck. It's going to be more than that. It's going to be more community building. So that is going to look different from, from church to church, but there are ways to do that. 
Well, and I also think there needs to be a perspective shift. And we were talking about this earlier. I think there's a lot of potential in, and this is coming from, you know, from a, you know, a fella in the one cup, no Sunday school, no Bible class tradition, (laughs) but there is a lot of potential in the small group setting. There's a lot of potential for building community and building relationship in that. But in order for that to work, there needs to be a paradigm shift in how those discussions are maintained. Like you can go in there and have a curriculum you follow or have a, you know, a lesson plan you follow, but being able to be more transparent, even in that small group setting is important, you know, encouraging the asking of questions, encouraging free discourse and, and questioning things, being able to talk about those hard things and being real with one another instead of just towing the line, quote unquote, and and per, promoting the status quo, being able to ask those questions that burn within us, those questions that gave me trouble, those questions that years ago threatened to derail my faith. If I had a small group that I was safe with and that I trusted and I was able to sit with and ask those questions and have those discussions, that would have saved a lot of trouble for me. So I think even engaging in that way would be helpful. Yeah. Um, If, if if there's nothing else that you have to say about that, there's another question that we have. Let me me say say one more thing real quick. I was talking, I was at a congregation because when I worked with the gospel of Christ, I, I literally visited over 200 different churches. And so I was able to have conversations with, with leaders of, of churches all of the time. And there was an elder, and I know that's the next question coming up, so this will kind of segue into that. But there was an elder, and uh, they had had a member of their congregation who had participated in some sexual sins he shouldn't, shouldn't have. Uh, nothing that was illegal or anything like that, but something that was definitely not Christ-like behavior. And uh, it, it was found out. And he repented. He acknowledged his sin, realized that this was a, an addiction, something he had been struggling with for quite some time, and he wanted to, to overcome it. His wife was supportive of him. They had a, a, aside from this, of course, they did have a good relationship. And this was a bump in the road, but it was something that he acknowledged and was willing to truly change. He got help, uh, got a counselor, was able to, to put in some different tools in his life, and they ended up firing the guy. And I was talking to the elder about this. I said, well, you know, I'm just curious, what, what, why would you fire him? And he said, well, ultimately the church is a business and we have to behave in a business. And if he were to do this where I worked, he would have gotten fired. And I got to thinking, and I got to thinking to myself, he's exactly right. The church is a business. The church by and large in most places is a business. It's not community because if you were, if you were to have church community, let me tell you something, this guy would have been in a home church. And he would have been, done that. You know what would have happened? Everybody would have put his arms around him and said, "We're going to walk, walk with. It. We're going to walk with you through this. We're going to be there because you're wanting to change. You've got support from your own wife. You're you've admitted your fault. You're wanting to do this. And we're all going to be there for you." They wouldn't have kicked the guy out <laughs> and said, "You can't, yeah. you, you can't come here anymore." And of course, the church would say they didn't kick him out. They just fired him, which meant he's going to have to go get another place to to work, or he's going to have to figure something out. But here's the thing. There, there's not an acceptance. There's, there's not a, you know, and, and look, this is, this is layered. I'm not trying to oversimplify situations like this. Okay. The point I'm making though, is that elder, that shepherd was right. 
the church is a business. And until we say the church is no longer a business, and until we come to the conclusion that the church is a community, it's not a business, we're not going to be able to change. And that's the problem is the church is a business right now. And so the number one, the number one thing we have to do is change our perspective and say the church is no longer a business, the church is a community, and that's the way we're going to start behaving. Till we do that, none of these other programs and all this other stuff that I just talked about is going to make it's not going to it's not going to matter at all. It's it's not going to help at all until we say the church is no longer a business, it's a community. Well, and it goes down into that and you know, we're really going a little longer than we wanted to with this, but this is such a good conversation. It it really boils down to being real because you can maintain the same mentality you had before and just change your behaviors. And that's not going to work out. I mean, people can smell, you know, someone who's disingenuous. And if it's like, well, if we start doing these things in the community, but nothing really changes on the inside of the pot, so to speak, you're not really going to have lasting change. You might have an initial burst, but as it's revealed that the, that the mindset or the motivation hasn't really shifted, Mm, there's not going to be any real lasting change that comes from it. And that's why leadership within a community is so important. And that's, that's kind of what segues into that next question. Yeah, yeah, I'll go ahead and ask this uh, this next question here. Do you believe churches should have elders or shepherds, pastors? What happens if they do not? I'll go ahead and let you take that one. Oh, brother. Well, if we look at what... <laughs> I'll, yeah. I'll chime in later, but I'll, I'll let you start with it. Oh, yeah, just throw it in my lap. That, that's a great idea. I think one of the things that we see in scripture is that the idea is, is that you're going to have a mature, a spiritually mature group of Christians that are leading their, their communities and leading their groups, not as lords of power and authority to rule over their underlings, but as shepherds, as guides, as counselors, as teachers. These are people that are seasoned in the faith. They have the right mindset. They have the right idea. They're devoted to Jesus. They have a love for Jesus. They have a desire to follow him and to make disciples and to build people up in towards a more, uh, what's the word I want to look for? A, for lack of a better term, a better representation of a sanctified life. And I, I think that we see that whenever we look at the qualifications that the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy and Titus regarding elders and what they should be. And that would be a good podcast that that we could do an episode on is, you know, those requirements, what that looks like and all that good stuff. You know, whenever we see that, you see the picture painted of someone who is mature, someone who's reasonable, someone who's level headed, someone who's a good judge of character, someone who has a lot of discernment. And these are people that can lead a community. And the idea, should churches have elders or shepherds? No matter what, you are going to have leaders that will lead a community. They, will <laughs> Amen, either lead, yeah. they are either going to lead the community in a good way or they are going to lead the community in a poor way. It's, it's not a matter of formalizing the process. In any group, you are going to have leaders that rise up to the top. The question is, is what kind of leader are they? Are they self-serving or do they serve the community? Are they focused on promoting their own ideas and ideologies against the grain of the status quo? Are they interested in promoting and maintaining the status quo to the to the damnation of everything else and to the to the detriment of the community in and of itself? 
Are they reasonable? What kind of leader are they? No matter what, you're going to have leaders. The question is, is what kind of leaders are they going to be? And that's when you look at what Paul told Timothy. That's when you look at what Paul told Titus. And, you know, you can go into it and we won't today, but these ideas of these qualifications an elder is supposed to have. If you have someone who's married, you have someone whose children are faithful, whatever that means. You know, are they faithful in the home? Are they faithful (laughs) when they're grown? You know, we can go into all that. You have someone who's not given to much wine. You have someone who, you know, is not quick to wrath, someone who is learned, someone who's not a novice. And to me, if you look at all of that and you condense all of that down into one thing, you have someone who is selfless, who's level-headed, who is willing to give, and who's willing to lead. That's essentially what you see. That's the picture. That's the psychological profile you get whenever you, you drill down what those qualifications are. And if you have someone that meets those qualifications leading your community, your community's better off. If you have someone yeah. who doesn't, then you're going to have problems. I think you hit the nail on the head where whether or not it's a, it's a formalized process or, or whatever, there's going to be natural leaders in every group of people, religious or non-religious. And so if you have a group of, of believers meeting together, there's going to be leaders. There, there's going to be those who are shepherding. And that's just going to naturally happen. It's not a matter of, of if, but just who. And if you know, the next part of that question is what happens if they do not? Well, every every group of believers who are meeting has already leaders in place. And I do believe that that there are better leaders than others. And I think that's what the qualifications are about, whether that should be taken literally, whether that should be something that was more cultural, that uh, is just more guidelines or whatever you want to argue. And we like Lee said, we may get into that later. They're still going to be leaders naturally. And so I, I do think that whether it's an institutionalized church, whether it's a, a home church, whether it's a non-business like church, communal structure, whatever, there's going to be people who are leading. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a group of people meeting to begin with. So when it when it comes to the next question here, this goes hand in hand with with talking about elders. And that's Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. And Hebrews 13, 17, I don't know if you have that pulled up. I can read that if you don't, because this was a question that was asked to us on the role of elders specifically. And Hebrews 13, 17 simply says this. It says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. That's Hebrews 13, 17. So the question is do elders and shepherds or leaders, whatever you want to call them, do they have the authority based upon Hebrews 13, 17 to mandate when members must come to church, quote unquote, when, when, when members must come together to worship? So even if there's not a biblical command per se, if elders say that you must come on Sunday morning or you must come on Wednesday or you need to come to a gospel meeting or revival that we're having this week, then does Hebrews 13, 17 grant the leaders the authority to be able to make those decisions and hold the the members who are part of that church community accountable? I want to jump in real quick and interject something as we begin to wrap this up with this final question. If if you look at the New King James Version, because it, what version did you read that from? What, what was that? Uh, that was NIV. So with the NIV, it doesn't really put it as strongly as what the King James and the New King James version does. So some of our listeners might be like, well, 
Where does that question even come from? How do you get that from Hebrews, you know, 13 and yeah, obey. Yeah. 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 The new King James version renders it like this. And I'll just read the first part. Obey those who rule over you. Obey those who rule over you. And this isn't talking about in a secular sense and be submissive for they watch out for your souls. So, to a lot of folks, this is referencing those shepherds. This is referencing, if you want to use the term, those bishops. It's referencing those elders that are in that position of leadership in a church. Obey them. And whenever you think about it in those terms, you can see how reading it in that translation, well, yeah, that question makes a lot more sense. Do they have the authority to mandate when members must come to church? Must we come when they say, hey, we're having services Wednesday. You have to be here. Is that what it means? Is that talking about elders? For me, it seems like it is talking about the leadership of the church, but I don't think it means that they are tyrants in, in a sense of they are the absolute authority like a governor or a police officer. Like if you get pulled over and the cop tells you you get out of the car and put your hands on the roof of the car, you better do it or you're probably going to end up tased or shot. You know, at the very least, you're going to end up arrested. And there are a lot of people who view the eldership as the same type of authoritative position. But whenever you look at those same requirements that the Apostle Paul talks about for the elders, you see that this isn't a position of authoritarian leadership. This is a position of servitude. This is a position of service to those in your charge. You're a shepherd. You're serving the best interests of the people, the best interests of the sheep, if you want to refer to it that way. So even if this is referring to an eldership or to elders, I don't think you can make the case based on the rest of Scripture that their word is absolute law. And if they say you have to be here Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, we're having a gospel meeting or a revival. And if you're not here, you have to give an account or give an answer. I think that goes too far personally. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. And and ultimately there's a lot of debate on Hebrews thirteen, seventeen, which we won't get into whether that's talking about elders or whether that's talking about the apostles, which is uh, a belief that that some scholars hold that this isn't even talking about elders in the sense of of how people believe them today. And then you also have the idea that elders uh cease to to exist after the first century. They weren't they weren't really meant to continue on. Um where I stand on that is is not really the point uh, for this discussion, because I think regardless of what view somebody takes, these are questions that still need to be addressed and considered. But the bottom line is you're going to have leaders. You're, you're going to, there's no way you're not going to have leaders. And God did not give those leaders the, uh, the ability to, or, or the uh, authority to, to become dictators over their congregants or over their church community. I mean, we, we never see that. Um, they're not, they're not to rule with a heavy hand. That's they're, they're supposed to lead. The whole idea of a shepherd is, is just that when you study shepherd, uh, a lot of churches now, they're no longer even using the word elder because that that's a, a word that a lot of people aren't familiar with. And they're using the word shepherd, not only because it's found in scripture, but also because it just brings to mind more of what church leaders are supposed to be doing. They're shepherding the flock. And I think when you look at that idea of shepherding, that's such a, such a different way of understanding it than just a typical di dictatorship that says, well, this is what you have to do. Now, I will say I used to believe that. I used to say, well, if your elder said you have to come Sunday morning, Sunday night, then that's fine. And uh, there used to be members who would go and get permission from the eldership to say, well, you know, I, I'm going to be out Sunday night 
is that okay? And they would say, yeah, you don't have to come Sunday night. You know, we're giving you a specific authority to, to be able to miss uh, this Sunday night because you're going to be out of town or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it just, it just got to the point where it was almost like a school where you would need a little red slip uh, from your, from your principal from your saying, that, yeah, yeah, you know, you're able to, to miss that day or whatever you're excused. But, uh, you know, all of this comes down to the fact that I want to just reiterate Christians should be gathering together. And in no way, when we talk about Hebrews 10, 25 in that last episode, did we ever want anyone to come away with believing that we weren't saying Christians need to gather together and worship God. They certainly do, but not in a way that we go to the Bible in some sort of a Christian constitutional fashion and say, well, Hebrews 10, 25, Article A says this. Uh, it's, it's, it should be a desire. It shouldn't be a transactional approach. It should be a relational approach. It shouldn't be a coercion. It should be uh, willful accountability. And if you don't have that to begin with, really nothing else that you do is going to matter anyway. You, you can, I've worked with congregations where I have just almost killed myself trying to get them to, to be who I think they should be. And you can put all the different programs in place in which I have been a part of that before. And that's why I said that I think inst- there are institutionalized churches who do a really good job at this, but there are also some who do a really bad job at it. And so I don't want anybody walking away from this conversation saying, well, Kevin thinks everybody should go to a a church where there's nobody who gets paid to be the preacher. Kevin thinks you should start your own home church. Um, I, I think that that's certainly a possibility, and I think that that's an option. But I do think that there are many good institutionalized churches out there who are doing a lot of good, who God has used to bring a lot of people to Jesus, and who are really out in their community that's making a, a eternal lasting impact on people. But there are also churches who are just going through the motions. And truth of the matter is they're not going to be here much longer anyway if they don't change. And so that's not just me being antagonistic. That's just truth of the matter. And COVID has really sped things up because people are really seeing that a lot of their congregants were really didn't want to be there to begin with because they weren't getting what they were supposed to be getting out of an assembly. They never even had community to begin with. I have spoken to people since COVID and they said, well, you know, we're not, we're not going back to the church we're at because we realized that it brought us down. We, we weren't growing closer to God. We actually were growing further away and we're trying to figure out what we're going to do next because we haven't lost our faith in Jesus. If anything, it's grown stronger and we want to figure out ways that we can continue to, to build our faith while we worship God and love him and love others. And so I, I don't want to ever give anybody a pass on this show saying, oh, okay, well, if you go to institutionalized church and you don't like it, we'll just quit and you don't have to worry about anything. No, if you no longer go to an institutionalized church, you still need to find a church community where you can get together with believers and, and have that community in worship. So I, I, this is not giving anybody a, a pass <laughs> saying that, oh yeah, Hebrews 10.25, don't worry about that. Just stay at home and uh, you know just pray every now and then and you're good. Uh, that misses the boat on what Christianity looks like as well. So I don't ever want someone to think that, that that's okay uh, or that that's what we're, we're trying to, uh, to give any credence to because that can't be further from the truth. Well, you can't make that case from Scripture in the least. No matter what, community is something that Christians must engage in because it's, it's good for us. It's for our own good. That's how we grow together. That's how we grow and mature. It, you know, in doing this podcast, like you and I, I, I believe that you and I have a sense of community with one another. And in the conversations that we have had both on the air and off the air, that has helped me grow in a lot of different ways. And I know you've expressed it's helped you grow in a lot of ways too. You know, we were talking about that before we hit record today, you know, we're helping one another, we're sharpening one another, we're building one another up. 
and I think it's not just a matter of, I think we also need to consider this as well. It's not a matter of the community not meeting a person's needs. I think we also need to be introspective enough to look at ourselves and ask, how am I helping to build community? Yeah. Are we meeting the community's needs? Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, in this conversation, we've we've compared and contrasted and discussed the idea of institutional church, what that looks like. We haven't gotten to how that became a thing or anything like that. Maybe something we'll talk about in the future on a future episode. But, you know, we've talked about how the community or the institutionalized church isn't meeting the community needs and how community isn't really being built. Well, then the question is, is what part am I playing in building that community? Yeah. Am I being a friendly person and am I being an approachable person? And there are people that are extroverted enough that and I'm one of those people. You can go out and shake hands with everybody, get to know people. And eventually you're going to find someone that you gel with. You're going to be able to grow. You're going to be able to build a circle. And if that is a part of your psychological makeup and you have that ability to, to never meet a stranger, then use that in building community. Use that to plug in to your church where you are and try to begin creating that community. And it may take off and it may be the thing that helps, you know, your local group in a tremendous way. It may also be something, if we're going to be frank, that's resisted. And it may be something that doesn't pan out the way that it should. But don't let that discourage you from using the gifts that God has given you and the ability to meet people and to um, um, be warm to others to to build that community. And even if you're discouragement. Yeah. And even, and even if you're not outgoing, cause where everybody has different personalities, you know, Lee and I can talk to, to anybody off the street at any time, but there's a lot of people out there like, yeah, but I'm, I'm not like you guys. I can't just walk up to someone and start talking to him about Jesus. That's just not my personality. It takes me a while to get to know people and talk to people. Well, there's still ways that people can, that, that people like that who, who are more introverted can, can still be invested and engaged yes. and yeah. it may, it may look different, but there's, there's still just that in involvement and engagement in, in seeking out how to, how to help the community, how to bring Jesus to the community. Jesus was not ever concerned with formality. And if you study the new Testament, he oftentimes, he, he purposefully bucked formality and that always just shocked the scribes and Pharisees. You know, how dare you? You're, this is formality. You know, you're not acting like the way you're supposed to. And and yet, for whatever reason, today most churches are all about formality. They're, 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 that's all they're about. And yeah. once again, I, I want to keep qualifying because I always hear the voice in in my head of people saying, "Wait a minute, that's not my, how my church is." Once again, there's always exceptions, and there are churches who are doing a fantastic job, but. Most people are struggling with this right now because they're they're going to church. It's more of a formality. It's more just what they're supposed to be doing. They hear a lesson and three hours later, they don't even remember what they heard. And they said hi to a few people and that's it. It's all formality. There's no investment. There's no true engagement. There's there's no receiving and there's no giving. And so when those things are not happening, and that can happen also in a, uh, a, a home church. So don't get me wrong. Home churches have their flaws too. Uh, you know, there's there's times people just get together and and not really make Jesus the center. I get that too. That can happen at, at any level. So there has to be involvement. There has to be engagement. It all has to be about loving God and loving people and getting together with other like-minded fellow believers to be able to do that and get out and invest in the community to show people who Jesus really is. Absolutely. And and if you go into it with that mindset. And maybe you don't have the mindset of, well, man, I just really don't like people. I don't want nothing to do with them. Well, 
sorry about you, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't get the option to not love people. Now, that doesn't mean you have to go out and shake hands with everybody. Like Kevin said, you know, you can still serve the kingdom in the capacity within the set of blessings that God has gifted you with. If you're an introverted person and the prospect of shaking hands with strangers terrifies you, don't shake hands with strangers. There are other ways that you can help build that community and serve others. But if community is going to be had, it's up to all of us. And and my whole point with, with this little diatribe is, is that we can't rely on others to build community for us. We have to plug in. We have to be willing to roll up our sleeves and do the work necessary to build community as well. We can't just leave it up to other people. We can't leave it up to the preacher. We can't let people live out our Christianity for us. It is up to us to do so. And part of living out that Christianity is doing our part in building the bricks of the edifice of what the community of Christ ought to be. Amen. Well, that pretty much wraps it up. We've answered all the questions. You got anything else that you want to add to it before we bring it to a close? I mean, I always got more stuff to add, but unfortunately, <laughs> I, don't, I want people to listen. So the best way to do that is to shut up sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a time to be speaking, a time to silence. There's a time to be silent. I, th- I think that, that someone really wise said well, that. Well, and, and you know, we've just, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's somewhere in the Bible. Um, I, I want people to know this is more of just a, a real conversation Lee and I are having when we're, when we're answering these questions today and there may be even more questions. So please ask those questions. We just want to be real. We want to be honest. We want to be transparent. We want to be vulnerable. The very things we've been talking about today, we want to make sure that we're doing. And so if some of these things may seem uncertain, because this is stuff Lena, I've talked about a lot. And, yeah. and, and for some people, this, you may be uncertain about some of this. You may just be unaware of some of the things we're talking about. And, and even some of the words we're using just may not be making sense. Don't assume we're saying something unless you're confident that is what we're saying. If you're, if you're not sure that we're saying something, you're not saying something, please, please, please let us know. Um, you know, I'm sure there's going to be people who take this. Oh, Kevin said, you know, that you shouldn't go to church anymore and you should do whatever, you know, you can do whatever you want to. All that stuff's just a bunch of rubbish. I mean, we, we've got to be honest with, 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 with what we're hearing. And if there's something that you're not sure about, well, did Kevin, you know, I heard Kevin say this or I heard Lee say this, is that what they really mean? Or I wonder what they really meant when they said this, perhaps they misspoke. I'm not sure. Please just ask us. Um, there's already been people who've, who've really just misrepresented us at times. And, uh, it, it hurts my heart because it does a disservice to what we're trying to do. It's not, it's not honest. It's not fair. And so please, if you have any questions, don't talk to somebody else about it and say, well, did you hear what Kevin and Lee said? If you're, if you're not sure what we said or what we meant by what we said, please just ask us. We'll either answer you privately or if you want us to discuss it, we're not going to use your name on air. So if you would say, well, hey, I would like for y'all to talk about this. I don't want you to just answer me. I want y'all to, to spend a whole episode talking about you know, X, Y, Z or how the church became what you call institutionalized. Can you do that? Yeah, we'd love to do that. So just let us know. I mean, we're here at your service and and we want to be able to help you any way we can. Even if you don't agree with us, we at least want you to know what we actually believe and not be misrepresented. And, and unfortunately, like Lee, Lee and I have discussed some, there have been times people have done that. And uh, we, if you have any questions, just ask us. We're not going to bite your head off or be ugly or rude. Hopefully by this time, pe- by this point, people will know. I mean, we we have people come on our show all the time who disagree with us. So it's, yeah. it's perfectly okay to ask a question or to say, I don't agree with you on that. That's fine. That, that really is okay. We're constantly growing and learning too. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, we, we love hearing from you guys and 
you know, you said that it, it hurts your heart. It just flat out makes me mad whenever we're misrepresented. I'm just going to be completely 100% upfront. It hurt my heart it gets, with a G-rated way of saying it. Well, yeah, but <laughs> no, dude, I get mad. It, it, it like really bothers me because it's like what people are saying that I believe this or I think this. Don't ask everybody else. Ask me. I'll tell you. Yes, Kevin, he'll tell you. We will tell you straight up and not in an adversarial way. If you want to know, well, where do you stand on this? Like I had someone reach out to me after our series that we did on origins and say, well, you know, what about the soul? What about the concept of ensoulment? And we ended up having a, a back and forth conversation on Facebook about it. They were wondering, well, where do you stand on this? And I love answering those questions. If you want to know what I believe, ask me and I'll tell you. And if I don't know where I stand on something, I'll tell you, I don't know right now. This is kind of where I currently am, but that's all subject to change. But in any case, I think this was a good conversation. We answered those questions well. Um, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully we did. Hopefully it wasn't just, you know, just an hour and 15 minute rant on the institutional church and people aren't going to misunderstand, but whatever. Um, I hope we did the questions justice. We we wouldn't have episodes like this if it weren't for you guys reaching out to us and emailing us and messaging us your questions. We love hearing from you. Drop us a line. Kevin and I are both on Facebook, though I have made a a promise that this next year I'm going to be severely limiting my time on Facebook. I, your post that you made about mindlessly scrolling the other day really hit home, and I'm like, yeah, I need to be better about that. But you can still reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line. We have the email in the show notes. You can email us, call us, you know, whatever the case may be. We love you all. Give us that five-star review on iTunes, on the platform of your choice, whatever you're using. Tell your friends about our podcast. Share it with others. We love you all. God bless.